Welcome to Murder Minute. Today, the story of Mark Kilroy, the American student who was sacrificed by a Mexican cult. But first, your true crime headlines. Speaking to reporters on the 50th anniversary of his death, the daughter of Rolling Stones founder Brian Jones said that she believes that he was murdered. Jones was found dead in his swimming pool on July 3, 1969, in Sussex, England. He had struggled with drug and alcohol addiction for several years, and his death was determined by the coroner to be accidental. Jones founded the Rolling Stones in 1962 and was asked to leave in 1969 as a result of his issues with addiction. He died just a month later. Jones's daughter Barbara, who only discovered that she was his love child in 2002, says that she developed this theory about his murder after doing her own research, and she believes that the police botched the initial investigation into his death. Sussex police reviewed the case in 2009 and determined that the coroner's findings were accurate. They have no plans to reopen the investigation. A 13-year-old boy will stand trial in Iowa for attempting to kill his social studies teacher in front of his classmates. On August 31st of last year, Luke Andrews, then 12 years old, brought a 22 caliber handgun into a classroom at North Scott Junior High in Eldridge, Iowa. He ordered the students to get on the ground and then pointed the gun at his teacher and pulled the trigger. Unfamiliar with guns, the seventh grader had left the safety on, so the gun did not fire and administrators were able to wrestle it away from him. It was later found to be fully loaded with a round in the chamber. Andrews was charged with attempted murder, assault while displaying a dangerous weapon, and carrying weapons on school grounds. He is being tried in adult court as a juvenile offender. If he is convicted, he will be held in juvenile detention until he turns 18, at which time a judge would decide whether to send him to prison. He has pleaded not guilty to all charges. The gun that Andrews used in the attempted shooting was illegally owned by his father, who is a convicted felon. After the incident, police found 50-year-old Joseph Andrews to be in possession of six guns, which were easily accessible by his son. Federal and state laws prohibit convicted felons from keeping guns, and the elder Andrews was charged and faces a maximum sentence of five years in prison. More than 200,000 people have signed an online petition asking that murder charges be dropped against three Russian sisters on trial for the death of their father. Maria, Angelina, and Christina Kachatorian, aged 18, 19, and 20, faced charges of premeditated murder after bludgeoning and stabbing their father Mikhail to death last year as he dozed in his favorite recliner. The sisters allege that their father was extremely abusive and that they acted in self-defense after years of verbal, physical, and sexual abuse. On the evening that he was killed, Mikhail had pepper-sprayed each of his daughters for failing to keep the living room of their apartment clean. He then nodded off in his recliner, waking to find his three daughters standing over him. The eldest, Christina, sprayed him in the face with pepper spray. Angelina, the middle sister, bludgeoned him with a hammer, and Maria, the youngest, stabbed him with a hunting knife. He fought the girls but was quickly overtaken, collapsing and dying in the hallway of their apartment building. Domestic violence is a widespread problem in Russia, 
which decriminalized domestic battery for first-time offenders in 2017 and has no dedicated laws for domestic violence. Claims of abuse are often met with indifference by police, and the Russian Orthodox Church condones corporal punishment at home as God's will. Though neighbors had complained about Mikhail threatening them, and the girls had only attended school seven times in the year preceding their father's murder, social services failed to intervene. If they are convicted of their father's murder, the young women could face between 10 and 20 years in prison. A New Jersey appeals court issued a scathing rebuke of a judge's earlier decision to show leniency to a 16-year-old who filmed himself raping an intoxicated girl and then shared the video of the assault widely. Prosecutors asked for a waiver to try the 16-year-old identified in court proceedings only as GMC, as an adult in the case, citing the sophisticated and predatory nature of the attack. Their request was denied by family court judge James Troiano, who wrote in his decision that the defendant, quote, comes from a good family who put him in an excellent school where he was doing extremely well. He is clearly a candidate for not just college, but probably for a good college. His scores for college entry were very high, unquote. Noting also that GMC was an Eagle Scout. The judge further went on to question whether the victim and her mother might not understand the devastating effect that a waiver would have on GMC's life, and he also questioned whether the victim was truly intoxicated at the time of the assault. Judge Troiano has been retired for eight years but was recalled to the bench for a term which is set to end in 2021. The appeals court admonished him in their reversal, saying that he erred in denying the waiver motion because, in the process, he substituted his judgment for that of the prosecutor. Manmouth County Prosecutor Christopher Gramiccioni said that he is grateful for the decision of the appeals court and that his office is planning their next moves, which will include discussions with the victim and her family. Those are your true crime headlines. For true crime anytime, Download the Murder Minute app or follow us on Instagram at Murder Minute. Up next, the story of Mark Kilroy. But first, a quick break. Hey, I'm Andy. If you don't know me, it's probably because I'm not famous. But I did start a men's grooming company called Harry's. The idea for Harry's came out of a frustrating experience I had buying razor blades. Most brands were overpriced, over-designed, and out of touch. At Harry's, our approach is simple. Here's our secret. We make sharp, durable blades and sell them at honest prices for as low as $2 each. We care about quality so much that we do some crazy things, like buy a world-class German blade factory. Obsessing over every detail means we're confident in offering a 100% quality guarantee. Millions of guys have already made the switch to Harry's, so thank you if you're one of them. And if you're not, we hope you give us a try with this special offer. Get a Harry starter set with a five-blade razor, weighted handle, shave gel, and a travel cover. All for just three bucks, plus free shipping. Just go to harrys.com and enter 8989 at checkout. That's harrys.com, code 8989. Enjoy! Welcome back to Murder Minute. Today, the story of Mark Kilroy, the American student who was ritually sacrificed by a Mexican cult. 
Mark James Kilroy was born on March 5, 1968, in Chicago, Illinois. His parents were James and Helen Kilroy. James was a chemical engineer, and Helen a volunteer paramedic. The family moved to Santa Fe, Texas, soon after Mark was born, where Mark was raised for 15 years with his brother Keith. Mark was raised Catholic, and the Kilroys were frequent attendees of Our Lady of Lords Catholic Church. Mark excelled at school and played baseball, basketball, and golf with his classmates. He was a Boy Scout and an honor student, a member of the Student Council, and was ranked 14th in a class of 210 students. After Mark graduated from high school in 1986, he attended Southwest Texas State University before transferring to Tarleton State University on a basketball scholarship. Mark soon decided to give up his athletics and transferred again to the University of Texas at Austin to become a pre-med student and prepare for his medical college admission test. On March 10, 1989, Mark Kilroy's childhood friend Bradley Moore finished his exams early and headed to pick Mark up for spring break. The friends then headed to Santa Fe to pick up two other friends, Bill and Brent, and begin their nine-hour drive to South Padre Island, Texas. When Mark and his friends first got to South Padre Island, it wasn't the party scene that they had hoped for, as the group were among the first to arrive on the first weekend out of five-week spring break season. But thousands of students from all over the country soon began to arrive, and Mark and Bradley called home to their parents to check in before meeting a group of female students from Purdue University and partying until dawn. Mark and his friends went to the beach the following morning and later that afternoon began planning a trip to Mexico. They left South Padre Island that evening and stopped for dinner in Port Isabel, Texas, where they met another group of female students from University of Kansas who were on their way to party in Mexico as well. The girls then got in their car and followed Mark and his friends from Port Isabel to Brownsville and parked their cars before crossing the U.S.-Mexico border by foot. Mark's friends and the girls spent most of that night at Sergeant Pepper's nightclub in Matamoros before going their separate ways. After their night south of the border, Mark and his friends returned to South Padre Island early the next morning. But on the 13th of March, they decided to turn around and head back to Matamoros. They again parked on the border and crossed by foot. Now flooded with spring breakers, Mark and his friends decided to go to the bar with the shortest waiting line. They ended up at Los Sombreros, and after a few drinks, wandered to London Pub, which had rebranded itself as the Hard Rock Cafe for spring break. Mark met with a few girls at the bar and was not seen by his friends for a while. Around 2 a.m., Bill suggested that the group head back to South Padre Island. As his friends left the bar, they saw Mark leaning against a car talking to a girl as thousands of spring breakers moved in different directions. Mark's friend Bill went to urinate in an alley as Mark walked the girl home and said goodnight. But when Bill came back to look for Mark, Mark Kilroy had disappeared. Bill shouted, Hey, Mark, stop fucking around. But there was no answer. 
Mark Kilroy had been lured into a red truck by 20-year-old Serafine Hernandez Garcia and Malia Fabio Ponce Torres. The two had offered him a ride. Realizing that the men meant to hurt him, Mark wrestled himself free of their grip and fled the scene. He made it two blocks before another car intercepted his path and Mark was kidnapped at gunpoint. He was handcuffed, his face was wrapped in duct tape, and he was thrown into the back of that second car. Mark's friends searched for him everywhere, even as businesses started to close after their late holiday hours. They crossed the border back into Texas and into Brownsville, where they had parked their car, hoping that Mark had gone ahead of them. But Mark wasn't there. They thought he might have headed back to the hotel with someone else. But they were wrong. When they woke the next morning, Mark Kilroy was still missing. Mark's friends called the police. The search for Mark Kilroy initially began as a routine missing persons investigation. Mark Kilroy was one of 60 people who had disappeared in Matamoros in the first three months of 1989. But students who were reported missing during spring break would often turn up in the following days hungover with a blurry memory of what had happened to them and where they had been. When the news reached Mark's uncle, Ken Kilroy, who worked at the United States Customs Service in Los Angeles, the case drew more attention and a police task force was created in Brownsville to search for Mark. Worried about the bad publicity and the potential effect on tourism in Matamoros, local police officers attempted to shift the blame and suggested that Mark Kilroy had disappeared in Brownsville. But Mark's friends vehemently denied such claims, and the Mexican Federal Police Force committed to working on the case with U.S. investigators. Commandante Juan Benitez Ayala led the Mexico investigation into Mark Kilroy's disappearance. Both Mexican and U.S. authorities suspected that Mark could have been a victim of drug-related violence or a robbery killing, but they were short on leads and progress was slow. Investigators even hired a hypnotist to see if they could figure out some clues. Under hypnosis, Bradley stated that he saw a young Hispanic man wearing a blue plaid shirt and with a visible scar across his face talking to Mark before he disappeared. He said the man walked up to Mark and said, Hey, don't I know you from somewhere? But none of Mark's friends were able to remember the exact time or place where Mark disappeared. Investigators knew that if Mark had been kidnapped, it wasn't for ransom, because his abductors had not called for a payment. They believed that Mark's body was likely dumped after he was robbed. United States Border Patrol helicopters and terrain vehicles searched along the Rio Grande River, but Mark's body was nowhere to be found. During the investigation, Mark's parents headed to the Rio Grande Valley and circulated more than 20,000 handouts through the region, offering a $15,000 reward to anyone with information that would help locate their son. People from Mark Kilroy's hometown traveled to Mexico looking for him, handing out flyers and offering a reward 
to anyone who could provide information. As Mark's friends and family did all that they could to track him down, U.S. authorities, frustrated by local authorities moving slowly and not sharing enough information, began to suspect that Mark's abductors had insiders within the ranks of the Mexican authorities. While the U.S. had praised the efforts of the Mexican federal police working with them on the case, they distrusted the state and municipal officials. On March 26th, Mark Kilroy's case was highlighted on the TV show America's Most Wanted, giving the case nationwide notoriety and generating several phone calls with letters and tips. But none of the leads were solid. A few days later, Mark's parents returned to Santa Fe, where local residents raised money through garage sales and car washes to help the Kilroy family continue to search for their son. On April 1, 1989, an unexpected breakthrough came. Agent Raul Morales headed the 13-kilometer checkpoint on the Serpentine Road near Santa Elena that led to Matamoros. The road stop had been implemented in the midst of the humid farmland to crack down on smugglers who liked to veer from the road and sack their drugs across the nearby Rio Grande. A red pickup truck crossed the international border from Texas and soared through the checkpoint. They did not slow down. Fortunately, one of the federales recognized the driver as Serafine Hernandez, member of the notorious Hernandez family. The officers remained patient and carefully followed Serafine in an unmarked vehicle. Serafine unwittingly led them to the family's ranch and they pulled off at a distance. After about 30 minutes watching Serafine come and go, the officers moved in to investigate. They found traces of marijuana in and around the vehicles on the ranch. They expected that. What the Federales did not expect was to see a small cement statue with a pear-shaped face and an angry frown staring back at them from the floorboards of a blue Chevy Suburban. Benitez knew the figure as Alegua, the trickster god. He advised his men to watch the ranch and to gather as much information as they could quickly before beginning to make arrests. It was clear that the Hernandez family was up to far more than their regular marijuana smuggling. With the help of some local informants, arrests were made on April 9th. Serafine, his uncle Elio, David Valdez, Sergio Martinez Salinas, and the caretaker of the ranch were all taken into custody. But none of them seemed afraid. They were calm and confident, as if despite the cuffs tightened around their wrists, they remained untouchable. It was the caretaker who finally identified Mark Kilroy through a photograph and stated that he saw him at the ranch. Yeah, I saw him, the caretaker said, and then pointed at the shack at the ranch. He told officers that he had seen Mark Kilroy on the Hernandez's property, still handcuffed in the bed of a truck. Investigators were caught off guard. Why would they have kidnapped a tourist and what did it have to do with the occult statue seen on the farm? 
The Federale's attention was fixated upon Serafine Hernandez. Surprisingly, he started to talk. It seemed that even as he confessed, he believed he would be protected by the man he called Padrino, Godfather. It was thanks to Padrino's witchcraft that he was able to move unheard and unseen before the eyes of law enforcement. Suddenly, Seraphine's complete negligence of the April 1st police blockade made sense. Yes, the young man confessed, they had killed Mark Kilroy. Specifically, he said that Mark was chosen at random because Padrino ordered his men to find a white Anglo male to sacrifice. Seraphine had helped. And yes, he continued, they had killed many others too. Seraphine identified Adolfo Constanzo as El Padrino, the leader of the cult. But the man was unheard of. He said that Mark Kilroy was killed by Constanzo with a machete blow and that his body was buried at the ranch. Police needed proof. On April 11th, they led Seraphine and the four other suspects back to the ranch where Seraphine agreed to show them where Mark was killed and buried. They were shown to the small shack at the rear of the property. During previous investigations, it had gone unnoticed. The moment Seraphine opened the shack's doors, the officers in attendance realized their mistake. It reeked of death. They ordered Seraphine inside to drag out the mysterious object that they saw on the floor. It was a cauldron. Inside was a collection of sticks, small objects, and shapeless gore. The Federales could make out a piece of hair matted to the blood. Inside the iron pot was a human brain, a goat's head, chicken feet, a turtle, herbs, a horseshoe, and coins mixed with animal blood. Now convinced, they demanded to know where Mark was buried. Seraphine pointed to a patch of raised dirt where a thin metal rod protruded. He explained that the wire was attached through Mark's spinal column so that when the boy's body decayed, they would pull the wire through the dirt to retrieve his spine and turn the vertebrae into jewelry. It would protect them, Seraphine explained. Seraphine was made to dig in the spot marked by the wire, and before long, the body of Mark Kilroy was found. It was then that the officers realized how many raised patches of dirt surrounded them. That afternoon, the suspects were forced at gunpoint to spend several hours digging up the graves. Once Mark Kilroy's body had been exhumed, the police observed that his legs were missing. Seraphine explained that the amputations were not a procedure of the ritual, but they were done to simplify his burial. They found 15 mutilated bodies on the Hernandez farm, killed 
over a period of nine months. Incidentally, they also found over 200 pounds of marijuana, 108 grams of cocaine, 12 firearms, and 11 vehicles. All were seized. Mark Kilroy's body was officially identified after police in Brownsville matched his dental records with teeth found at the ranch. Investigators concluded that most of the victims were rival drug dealers and not random sacrificial victims of the cult. Three out of the 15 bodies were never identified. On April 12, 1989, the suspects, along with authorities, held an informal press conference. Hundreds of journalists and photographers watched as the four suspects were paraded on the building's balcony and answered questions from reporters. One stated that he was an ordained executioner under Constanzo and that Mark Kilroy was murdered by Constanzo. He showed his membership scars on his shoulders, back, arms, and chest. Arrow-like cuts made with a hot blade given only to select cult members with the authority to perform human sacrifice. On April 13th, a service was held at Our Lady of Lourdes Catholic Church in Santa Fe for Mark Kilroy. Originally intended to be a ceremony to pray for Mark's safe return, upon news that his body had been found, the gathering turned into a memorial service. The Kilroy family showed deep faith and remarkable generosity in their forgiveness. Speaking to the press, Mark's father said that they were not angry with the killers. He said that he hoped that if and when those responsible for Mark's death go to heaven and see their son, they can apologize to him for their wrongdoing. Mark's mother told others to pray for the murderers. Mexico and U.S. authorities realized that they needed to find and stop the cult leader known as El Padrino. Two weeks after the bodies were exhumed, the Mexican federal police returned to the ranch early in the morning to burn down the shack and lay a wooden cross. The police took a folk healer to purify the shack. The healer went inside the house, said a few prayers, and sprinkled the floor with salt. The policeman then sprayed gasoline around the shack and lit it on fire. Police said that they knew the shack meant a lot to Constanzo. We would hit him where it hurts, the police said. They needed to draw him out. When Constanzo saw his shack burning on television, he flew into a rage. The hunt for the cult leader was on. This has been Murder Minute. Tune in next week as our story of Mark Kilroy and cult leader Adolfo Constanzo, known as El Padrino, continues. For true crime anytime, download the Murder Minute app or follow us on Instagram at Murder Minute.